This is the Sonder Community Podcast. Our goal is simple, better ourselves and better the world. My friends, it is so good to be here. Thank you for listening. I I love that I get to be able to be a little vibration in your eardrums. But before we get into today, I wanted to do a little housekeeping, make sure that we're kind of all on the same page about some things before we get into uh, the content. Uh, f- first thing is uh, I got a lot of feedback as I've written in uh, the first chapter of a letter, open letter to a dying church. There's a lot of people who kind of were like, well, so is the point to just kind of vent and talk about how crappy the church is? Um, you know, what do you want people to do? And I, I, I really tried to make it clear in there that this, this you know, 10 minute read was not going to be the, uh, the silver bullet, the magic balm to solve all the problems of the, the church. Um, and, you know, it's even titled chapter two, chapter one, as implying that there's more to follow. But, um, I wanted to make it clear that I didn't give any great solutions. My whole, my only goal really was to give, um, like to hold up a mirror and say, Hey, I had to look at this mirror for a long time. Here's a mirror for you to look at and maybe give some space to reflect. You know, it's easy to the go-to in the evangelical church world is to kind of say, and here's the one thing to do this week. And I think that has its has its place, but I think there's also um, something unique about giving yourself some space and not having the answer right away because I, I don't have all the answers and which is, which is um, unsurprising if you know me, but the, yeah, I'm not. I'm far from the smartest person in the room. But the the point being that I I hope that you you gave yourself some space to kind of reflect on that, and um, yeah, and we're gonna give some more actionable actionable things um, going forward here in these in the subsequent chapters. And today I'm I'm really trying to avoid for the most part any of my own kind of personal beliefs. And there's a few spots where I kind of say, this is what I think about this, or this is my belief on this. But for the most part, I'm really doing my best to, uh, you know, for one, assess the church and really presenting other people's ideas and um, you know, some reasonable options, things that I'm like, well, this seems like a pretty decent option. It's not maybe not necessarily what I believe or what I think, but I think this is a good alternative. Uh, Today is a little bit longer. I will give you a heads up on that. All the content is also on on the website on the sondercommunity.com. And it's a lot of content. I mean, there's so much information, and I did that on purpose today because I was trying to express like how complex a lot of what this is, but there's a lot of information and um it's it's hopefully not too dry. I had a I didn't really want to have to write this. Like there's that like feeling of like, I don't know, this is, this is not something I want to write about. But as I did it, there was a lot of, a lot of times where I, I couldn't help but laugh at the irony or the funny. There's just some funny, interesting, not funny, like a comedian, just funny, like, oh man, no, like it just, 
I didn't even know how to, it's not, I don't know. I don't know how even to describe it. Just like, oh, that's, that hit something. That hit something in me. I just, I don't even know. Um, so I did, I did have fun with it today, but this a little bit longer and, you know, obviously if you don't want to listen to it, just go ahead and don't listen to it. But every section, I mean, I, I think every section has a unique thing to bring to the table. I didn't try to, I tried to not ramble. I tried to not go on for too long. But every, every section I thought was like, this is, this is important. And there's something that just goes, oh man, um, every time. So if you're getting frustrated with it, that's okay. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, I hope that you maybe don't enjoy it. Maybe you do hope that you listen and I don't know, it means something to you, but let's do it. Cue transitional intro music stuff. My friends, it is so good to be here in this moment with you inside your eardrums. Ah. Today we're going to continue with the open letter to a dying church with chapter two, no other gods before me. The topics are pretty linear and it's, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm going to give you a little overview of where we're headed here. Uh, So you might, you might hear the overview and go, oh yeah, I know where this guy's going, but here, here we go. Here's, here's, here's the whole map. This contains everything that we're talking about. The holiest rioter, the irony of the idols that the church worships, worship song bangers, an intern with a funny face, one of the silliest questions I get asked, the Bible tells me so, the gender and biology of God, Christianity Today, Steve Jobs, the American flag, and how settled we should feel not being settled. So there it is, the whole thing. Let's get into it. You're probably familiar with this story, but if you need a quick refresher, it goes something like this. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Moses became an advocate for the Israelites. He demanded their release in the name of their God. He started with peaceful protests, hoping to convince Pharaoh to free them. He tried talking and reasoning with the king. He turned his staff into a snake. He took a knee during the national anthem, got the community to march, boycotted buses, the whole thing. All these peaceful protests proved to be completely ineffective and unconvincing to the authorities of the nation. So while Moses maintained the peaceful protests, God took it to the next level. God poisoned the water by turning it into blood. God forced there to be famine. God made Pharaoh unwilling to listen and learn. God killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptian families. And this, this must be what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about when he said, riots 
are the language of the unheard. God must not have felt heard. God the rioter. Finally, enough was enough. Pharaoh relented and let them go as free people. They didn't hesitate and instantly set out with Moses as their leader and God as their guide. They were able to see God every step of the way. God was in the clouds that guided them in the day. God was in the fire that led them by night. God was even evident in the food they ate. Now, after wandering for three months, they got to their temporary destination, Mount Sinai. Moses and God went up the mountain together to have a private conversation. God told Moses about some laws for the people and gave him specific instructions on how to worship. The plan was that the Israelites would make a tabernacle, which is basically a tent, and in that tabernacle, God would live. They would set it up everywhere they stayed and take it with them wherever they went. It would it would be a symbol that God was with these nomadic people wherever they go. While Moses was on the mountain, the Israelites had been left at the base, and 40 days went by. They still had no word from Moses. Where was Moses? Where was God? The person who had led them here was gone. The images of God which had been with them every day were suddenly nowhere to be found. It's easy to imagine that they were frustrated and anxious. They craved the stability and reassurance which came from worshiping God. In Egypt, where they had been enslaved for centuries, gods were worshipped in temples and represented by statues. With this in mind, the Israelites were likely asking questions about how, where, and even who to worship. In desperation to worship God, they asked Aaron, Moses' brother, to make a statue of a golden calf, a baby cow. With a figure, they would at least have a physical representation towards which they could direct their worship. The golden calf was chosen because this God, Yahweh, was the God of Abraham. Abraham's God also went by the name El. And at that time, El was often represented by a calf. So this calf statue wasn't totally random. This was a known representation for El or Yahweh by another name. Most Jewish scholars believe that the golden calf was not meant to displace or replace God. On the contrary, the goal was likely to make God more tangible to the Israelites. The calf was to be an image to represent and be a conduit of Yahweh. In fact, the overall concept, the ceremonies and rituals that the Israelites were performing directly mirror what God had told Moses regarding the tabernacle in the previous chapters. Fascinating. There is a sense. There's a sense that this wasn't inherently malicious, as it is often told today from the mainstream pulpit. It's likely that many people, including Aaron, meant well, and there was a lot of rationality to it. The problem is, 
they missed the point somewhere. Because Moses came down and was furious at them. While the metaphorical ink was still wet on God's new instructions, Moses destroyed the tablets of the Ten Commandments in a fit of rage. And in doing this, he essentially tore up Israel's contract with God. After that, he had the priests murder the people who danced and worshipped the idol. God then sent a plague to kill even more people. Wild. What a story. As a child, I took from the story that you should not use your gold to make statues of cows, which was easy enough. I did not have much gold anyway as a child. Now, I was also taught that, you know, the modern day idols look a lot different. The examples given would be, you know, TV, video games, sports, Star Wars, toys, really anything can go here. Anything in life that has captivated your attention and isn't God can be considered an idol. Now, I don't think that line of reasoning is necessarily wrong, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think it captures the whole picture. Because is the God of the universe so insecure that they killed people because they were praying to a statue of a cow made of mineral? I mean, I find, I find that unlikely. That sounds like something an ancient civilization would believe about their gods. I mean, Zeus was so mad he sent lightning to burn the house down. Or Poseidon was so offended that he flooded the city. I mean, you get the picture. That doesn't sound like an actual divine whose ways are higher than my own ways. That actually sounds, you know, more like a toddler. It seems like there's a deeper issue here to explore. So maybe... Maybe this static, unchanging image of a cow distracted people from more important things, things that are more worth attention, gratitude, and adoration. Maybe a statue made it seem as if God was pinned down to a location, whereas the tabernacle represented mobility that everywhere they went, God was with them. So what may have been meant as a symbol or a place for God to live had been taken had, had taken center stage. So this worshiping of the idol seems basically the same as if they were worshiping the tabernacle itself, the tent itself, and not God. Now perhaps inadvertently, it became not simply a representation of God, but a replacement for God. Now, on the flip side, I know we turn Aaron and the disobedient Israelites into the bad guys, but I'm, I'm not sure they deserve the hate that they get here. I mean, they were afraid. They wanted God on their side. God had just delivered them from Egypt where gods were represented by statues. The symbol of Abraham's God was a calf, so a calf statue made sense. And after 90 days of travel and 40 days of their leader being gone, I mean, they wanted to celebrate and thank God. They were probably a little bit bored. They also likely felt abandoned. They had worship to give. They needed an outlet. They were acting in a way that isn't impossible to understand. Now, side note, we should be critical reviewers. In this play of life, learning the character's context and motivation and acknowledging where the scene falls in the overarching story can really help deepen our understanding. And it gives us more, gives the whole thing more of a significant meaning. 
There are three idols that I believe are devastating and hiding in plain sight, and they will continue to stunt the growth of the in the health of the church unless something changes. And I believe that the main idols that the Christians worship today are the church, the Bible, and God. Oh, I would say it again. I sorry. I think it's the irony, right? I believe that the main idols that Christians worship today are the church, the Bible, and God. Now, there are other significant idols that Christians worship, and that might be offensive to you. This whole thing might be offensive to you. I just hear me out, or don't hear me out. That's up to you. But I think that these, these should be the first ideas that we confront. I mean, they are easy to overlook and can feel heretical to address. And frankly, I just think they're just a little ironic and funny. Now, let me, let me basically quote Paul and say this. I'm not writing this to make you feel ashamed. In fact, I would prefer not to write this. But I, I feel a burden to do so. I feel like I have to. I can't not do this. I'm writing this to you as if to my brothers and sisters. I'm comfortable enough to be direct. Because as long as there is jealousy, quarreling among yourself and with people of different beliefs, there is impulsive anger, harsh judgment, contempt for the outsider, misrepresentation of others and their ideas, and self-centeredness. Are you truly living in the spirit of Christ? You have the option to totally ignore everything I say. You don't have to listen to this. You don't have, you don't have to listen to this at all. Read it. But you can also listen to this and make a podcast about how wrong I am. All of that is totally fine. But before we can talk about the spirit in all things, we have to address these things on idolizing the church, worshiping the calf, worshiping the medium, worshiping the tabernacle, temple, building, service, or church. What was supposed to be the platform, conduit, and image that represents or attracts the presence of God has become the center and attention of worship. Fascinating. I just think it's fascinating. The Israelites, along with most Jewish teachers at the time, often depicted God in a location. So God was in the burning bush or the cloud, the pillar of fire, the storm. God was on the move with the Israelites, but was always within the tabernacle. Now, eventually, a temple was built so that they could retire the tent and have a more permanent location for God's presence to be. Uh, this was, you know, the dominant depiction. You know, God was to be found in a specific place. Even though Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, he preached a totally different message. Early Christians wrote that Jesus came on the scene and said, no, no, that, that ain't it. God isn't contained in the temple. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is within you. The temple building is not where God lives. You are the temple. And the same spirit that is in me is in all of you. So there's this a whole dramatic scene in the Bible that illustrates this idea. So at the exact moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple is torn. So meaning the physical representation that the world is separate from God's presence was destroyed. This was you know, an unheard of sign because it meant that nothing separates humanity from the divine. 
God does not have a singular dwelling place, but as, as Paul put it in a letter to a church, God is through all and in all. The message here is simple. A building does not contain God. A building cannot contain God. God is in all and through all. God is not revealed in a place because a particular song is sung, prayer is prayed, or ritual performed. God is. God is in all moments and beyond all moments. God is for all people, not just a specific group or people who act and perform a certain way. God is. And all we have to do is notice. We see two clearly distinct ideas. So God is in a location versus God in and through all things. This idea of God is totally different than what most people believed. I mean, it was, you know, it was rad. But today, I see a church whose actions are more aligned with the idea um, that God is in a place. You have to usher God in. So while trying to worship God, the church has inadvertently turned itself into an idol. The irony, right? Man. Now, there are two ways that this is happening, I believe. Uh, one is an obsession with church as a time frame, location, and performance. And then two, a following of wannabe celebrity pastors, churches, musicians, and bands. Now, the verbiage used to portray God makes it seem like God is pinned down to a location or group. God has to be ushered in. There's a language that creates an attitude of being in God's presence and out of God's presence. So God is over there and we are over here. We have to convince God to come to where we are, whether that's through prayer, being in a service or building or singing songs with more heart or louder. You can see it in the songs that everyone sings. Here in your presence, all things are new. Like a flood, like a flood, we receive your love when you come. Spirit, come and fill this place. Come and fill, come and fill. God, I just want to be where you are, are, are. I mean, the list goes on. You get the picture. I mean, I could keep going, and I'm sure you want me to. But look at those keywords. Here. Here in your presence. When you come, fill this place where you are. I mean, all the language sends the message, God, come here, please. We're waiting for you and hoping to be around you. Now, I am... I'm actually all about poetry, music, and metaphor. You know, I don't like to be too too stuck in literalism when it comes to topics like God and spirituality and all that stuff. But at the same time, I I believe it's crucial to be mindful of the language that we use because the language it creates a mental reality for so many people, including ourselves. Here's another line that I keep saying that reflects this mentality of worshiping the church. Some guy on Twitter, I don't know, he, he got a lot of retweets. He might be a pastor. I, I should have done more research into who this person was, but it doesn't matter. He, this is the, it's the mentality. That, that's the point. He said, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, and they're absolutely right. 
Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. You don't have to go home to be married, but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. And another very similar tweet was, uh, just in case you're wondering, live stream marriage is not the same as in-person marriage. Here we see that the idea presented is that a relationship with God relies on going to church services in a church building, I guess, even. If you stay away from the church, it's the same as if you've left your spouse alone at home. Your spouse is at home. God is at the church. God is in the church. God's not outside of it. Or God is over there and we are over here. I mean, are you are you seeing it? Like you are you seeing that this is this is in direct opposition of the whole veil is torn idea and symbolism. That God is not contained within a temple. I mean, your body is the temple where you are the spirit of God is. So this is this is the pervading message, not just in your words, church, but in your actions. So I'm thinking back to the beginning of COVID-19. The whole world shut down. Everything. Bars, restaurants, businesses, concerts, wedding venues, schools. Well, everything. You know, you were there. You may remember that time. The goal was to stop the transmission of a deadly disease and save as many lives possible. And so much was unknown uh, at the time. And if the mortality rate was 1% of people who will die. I mean, that's no, that's no small number. The world has almost 8 billion people. So if every person got it and 1% died, that means 80 million people would die. So if everyone in a church of 10,000 contracted COVID, well, the statistical implication is that 100 people would die. I mean, 1% may sound small when you first hear it, but the implications of 1% are dire. And imagine, I mean... Imagine if it was worse. Imagine if, I mean, at the time of what I'm about to talk about, there was, it was a lot, a lot was unknown, but if it was worse than 1%, oh my God. Anyway, so unlike any time in history, temporarily shutting everything down and mass quarantining was actually relatively doable, especially with how much was unknown in the beginning. In most places, for no extra charge, groceries and supplies could be delivered within a a few hours. That is when people weren't fear hoarding toilet paper. Endless amounts of entertainment live in our pockets, computers and TVs. And though not ideal, school could be done online. Family members and friends could jump on a video chat or text. And as far as churches go, many already had online services. So obviously there are a lot of factors, especially dependent on people's economic position and the safety at home they found themselves in at the time. But though not overly convenient, we had to be adaptable to save lives. And technology made that adaptation, you know, pretty doable and convenient for the most part. As the first businesses began to reopen in a minimal capacity, churches were asked to refrain from meeting in person for the time being. Now, eventually, when they could meet, they were asked not to sing for the time being. And all of this was temporary. And churches were not alone in these restrictions. I mean, again, most businesses, all venues, all events, all concerts were canceled. Online services were still available. Video chatting with your church community was still an option. 
Christian music was not taken off of Spotify or YouTube. The restriction was that hundreds and thousands of people could not gather in person to sing songs. And all of this was because of a highly infectious, airborne, easily transmissible disease that was killing people. The message was still given, the music still played, just not in person. And again, all with the singular goal of saving lives. This is perceived as an attack. This is persecution. Too many Christians and churches were adamant that they were being victimized and singled out. I mean, fear told people that this was the government taking control. This was the first step in a plan where the goal was to end church forever. I mean, this is, despite no evidence to back this up, this is also at a time when an overwhelming majority of the U.S. Congress are Christians, 86.2% of the House of Representatives and 82% of the Senate. I mean, American Christianity is not, is not currently threatened by any governmental forces. The only threat from the U.S. government is in Christian nationalism, but that's a different topic for a different time. The belief was that soon it would be illegal to be Christian, and this is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration for effect. These are actual opinions that were being shared and, I mean, still are as of me recording this. This was all put on display, too, after the you know following George Floyd's death and the subsequent protests. Many in the church world, you know who I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about, quickly made it about them instead of being curious, shocked, and horrified by an utterly unnecessary taking of life. A church band set up at Floyd's memorial service in hopes of converting people. I mean, so a year and a half after these events, I read a news article, uh, and the title was, We Didn't Back Down. Christians Respond to Portland Antifa Attack with Massive Worship Rally. The argument quickly became, if protesters can gather in groups, we should be able to. And I want to pause because as a side note, imagine yourself as a teenager using that logic on your parents. If they can, I should be able to. I mean, come on. That's good. That's funny. Did that, would that have worked? No, I don't think so. Something, something, jump off a bridge. Would you follow? You know, I don't, it's just take a second and laugh with me about that. <sighs> If they can, we should be able to. Hilarious. So this this point is is less that everything was done in response to the pandemic and was perfect, and that every measure was without flaw. the The point that I'm trying to make is that overnight the church went from being experts on God to experts on racial justice, epidemiology, and pandemic response. The church, I mean had such strong opinions about things it knows nothing about. I mean, this is madness. This this is not in any way how you show your rightness. This seems, this seems like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That even if, I mean, even if, I mean, even if you believe that the protests were wrong. Even if you believe that, is this it? I mean, is this the thing? You know, is this the most important? Is this the is this Christ-like? 
Is this being slapped so you turn your other cheek? Is this being sued for your tunic so you give your cloak too? Is this being forced to walk one mile so you walk too? <sighs> now let's discuss the church and following wannabe celebrity pastors, churches, musicians, and bands. You know, I, I see this. I see a pervading desire to be this next big thing. The next Hillsong, Elevation, Andy Stanley, Judah Smith, Mosaic, you name it. From performance to ideas, even directly copying sermons, there is a worship of church sexiness. I mean, you wouldn't call it that, but that's, you know, that's kind of what it is. This happens to, to the point where the churches that don't pursue that, that same excellence or sexiness are judged. It reminds me of, uh, well, Paul, my buddy. I don't know that we're buddies. I, wouldn't, I don't know that I'm going to associate with him that strongly. But it reminds me of what Paul wrote to a church. He writes, When someone says, I follow Paul, and someone else says, I follow Apollos, why? They are simply human. Are you not the same? What is Apollos? What is a Paul? Simply servants. My friends, it's not about the preacher or church, Paul or Apollos, the goal is simply to be servants. There's no need to try and emulate any other person, leader, or church. There's no need to have brand loyalty to a preacher, leader, or church. Paul seems to be pointing out that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. There's nothing special about people who speak and perform well. Their talent is in no way a reflection of the quality of their character. I mean, which I mean should be obvious by the amount of talented church leaders caught in whatever scandal that they've been caught in. So many. I was about to start naming them, but just the amount is too many. You know who I'm talking about. It's easier. It's more convenient and much more financially prudent to have a following of people dependent on you. And in the same way, it's a lot more difficult. It's, it's more humbling. It's complex to help people connect with the spirit already dwelling inside of them. It wouldn't be shocking if Paul you know, wanted people to say, I follow Paul. Instead, he says, you're missing it. This, this thing here, <laughs> whatever you think I have, this is available to you. Church sexiness uh, can also extend to the, how the church presents itself. I mean, there's, a, there's constantly a hunt for the influencers, basically attractive and famous people or popular people. These people are sought out because they will draw more people to them. So leaders and churches give all their attention to those Kingpins, that's what that's what they always called them, the kingpins. You got to get the kingpins. So in larger cities, it's celebrities and professional athletes. In youth ministry, it's football and basketball players. I was deeply involved with the church in my hometown for seven, several years. Seven, way more than seven. Uh, and I don't want to name names, so I'm going to make some names up. Um, so let's say they used to be called First Rockford, but since have rebranded First City Church. So you have no idea who I'm talking about. Now, this is an incredibly dominant mentality there. Um, this was, I mean, I can't speak to it. I've been there in five years, but I do not anticipate that this has changed. Because while, while working as the director in the music department, we were desperately short on musicians and qualified people to lead songs. 
Now, there was two stories I'm going to share with you. So there was a uh, player who was incredibly kind. He was generous, adaptable, and really cared about playing. He's one of those people who would constantly practice, and he, he was willing to work on what needed to work on. And he was a volunteer, um, but he was he was overweight, so he wasn't he wasn't able to play on Sundays. Since then, he's he's lost some weight and he looks great. And so now he's suddenly able to play on Sundays. There's also an intern who was involved as I mean, she was involved as any human being could be. She was there all day, every day. She was young, talented, loving, and a great leader. She sang better than most people on the team. But the problem was she sometimes made a funny face when she was singing. So she couldn't sing on Sundays. So instead, she spent most of the time in the background playing keys. The church should take note from the branding team at Victoria's Secret. And for years, Victoria's Secret had skinny models of exceptional beauty, and even the products they sold were all geared towards very petite women. And by 2021, they had ostracized so many people that they realized they needed a brand change. They started having a diverse representation of women and expanded their size options. Now, the verdict is still out on if they can win people back to their brand, but the effort seems logical. Now, I don't want to get too into the weeds on Christian karaoke or performative services. However, I just can't pass up this opportunity to use the biggest offering cliche since the first century common era. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Oh, I want to say that again. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Or, want to know where your heart is? Check your bank statements. How do I know what you care about? Look where you spend your money. Now, it's been said a million times, a million different ways, but the question leaders ask their congregation is the same. But I kind of want to flip it on its head. Let's pretend. Let's say that the congregation is now preaching this to church leaders. So leaders, pastors, Is your heart in the annual new purchases, the new lights, the new sound system, the revamped amphitheater, remodeled offices? Is your heart in pastor bonuses, in $15,000 weekend guest speakers? I mean, hey, I love good quality things. I'm not saying you shouldn't do things well. But on the other hand, I've never seen a Christian-focused Instagram account blow up as fast as Preachers and Sneakers. It is no accident that the account resonated with so many people. And if you don't know, Preachers and Sneakers is an Instagram account that posts photos of pastors in expensive designer clothes on stage and with the suggested selling price next to it, which is usually very high. Lots of money. So, of course... You can unfollow the account. You can plug your ears and pretend people don't care. But that doesn't mean that the issue has disappeared or it shouldn't be talked about. It's like a bad toothache. You can chew on the other side, but it's not going to make the issue disappear. You should just confront the problem before it gets even worse. But this also, like most things in life, is... It goes back to the idea in the beginning, you know, like Aaron creating the golden calf. It's it's just a little bit complicated. A lot of pastors and people in attendance are well-meaning people. And excellence, beauty, and quality are good things. 
even so, this is something worth investigating. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. So something is off, and it's worth talking about. Ben Kirby, the preachers and sneakers guy, said it well. He said, the sneakers were never really the problem. It's more about a system that we've created that can create celebrities out of guys that are preaching about a Jewish carpenter that got murdered on a cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. I mean, people don't want to hear this, but it's supply and demand. If there was no demand for this, there would be no churches like this. Now, all things are permitted, but not all things are beneficial. So have your performance, play well, prepare in advance, create beautiful spaces. Nice things are nice and aren't inherently evil. In fact, excellence is actively good, but simply recognize that it's not the main thing and act accordingly. Being the light of the world does not mean having a light show that competes with Coldplay. It's about a way of life. Do you see? Do you, I mean, do you see it? By equating a relationship with God to attending service, you've become blind to the very spirit within you. By overemphasizing the performance, leaders, and services, you've taken away the freedom and joy that comes from existing authentically as your own person, leader, service, or church. <sighs> oh. That was a lot, I know. And if you were offended by that and you've left, you are not hearing what I'm saying right now. But if you're not and you're here, thank you for being here. We're doing good. Let's stretch, take a moment. That was a lot. And prepare. This is probably the most section. I'm going to tell you right now in advance, we're about to get into it on idolizing the Bible. Do you believe in the Bible or not? Now, I've been accusingly asked this more than a few times. Believe in the Bible? Like, do I, do I believe it exists? I, do I think that it was inspired by God? Do I believe in biblical inerrancy as defined in the Chicago Statement in like 1986? It's a complicated and loaded question, to say the least. People want a yes or no, of course, but I'm not going to give that. So let's start with the phrasing. Do you believe in the Bible or not? Simply, it's it's weird. It's almost like the Bible has become the fourth part of the image of the Trinity, or as as if it requires some like believing in to have value. It's like you you have to accept, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, as your, like, number one most relatable song of all time. It actually kind of reminds me of uh, the, one of the, I don't, I don't, it might be all of the Peter Pans, I don't even know, but one of the Peter Pans movies specifically, Tinkerbell is dying, and she's brought back to life because enough people say, I do believe in fairies, I do, I do over and over again. It feels similar to that. Admitting to not believing in the literal occurrences or agreeing with every line of the Bible has become equal to, or worse than, living without faith, hope, or love. This collection of writings, which is put together over the course of about 1,400 years that we call the Bible, has become the entirety of many people's faith. 
in well, I mean, these people probably a lot of these people haven't read it if we were to be frank but it's fine we're not going to get into that it's just it's all fascinating okay there is no biblical doctrine there's no unified biblical message of well really anything the New Testament was written in Greek, which is a language Jesus didn't likely speak or understand well, if at all. And the letters of the New Testament were composed 30 to 80 years after his death. So we can see that the exact words of Jesus were apparently not that important to anyone at the time. So why should they be for us? There's no Christian Bible when these things were being written. So this means that early Christians didn't have this new content that we have for 30 to 80 years after Jesus. And if they had any of it, they had like two pages of a letter written from somebody. But it's it's important to note here that Jesus and likely most of the early church leaders didn't view themselves as creating Christianity. There was a new thing happening, but it wasn't a new religion. In fact, after the death of Jesus, a lot of people still attended Jewish synagogues. It took decades for the Jewish leadership to expel them from synagogues. Eventually, some churches received letters from church leaders, but those were individual letters to that church from people they respected and looked to for leadership. They were not viewed as like divine scriptures. The early church had to spend time disagreeing, debating, and considering what ideas from Judaism were worth continuing and which were no longer relevant. Friends, it took 400 years for the first official combining of all of these letters, poems, law books, songs, wise sayings, and everything else that compiles to make the modern Bible. And that Christian Bible was only being formalized because Christianity had become the Roman Empire's official religion, which should be an automatic red flag. A red flag? Red flag. You know, you've seen those emojis. So using an official and approved compilation of scriptures, they could approve orthodox theology and root out heretical theology, which was not a thing before this happening. So during this time, heretical theology became punishable by death. Now, if this, just go with me here, if this would have happened at the beginning of the church, that would have been even more detrimental. I mean, nobody agreed on anything in the early church. There were constant disagreements and divisions in the church in between early church leaders. So imagine if one group had been correct and the rest were put to death. I mean, who would survive? Would it be Peter or Paul? James or Barnabas? I mean, you get the picture. It's wild. So even after the Bible was compiled, it wasn't until 1,100 years later, so 1517 Common Era, that it began to be widely distributed and known by ordinary people. So what did the ordinary people before that understand of the Bible? Well, I mean, obviously what the Catholic Church told them, but they had no... Re- Actually, even then, the Catholic Church was speaking a language they didn't understand. So then so then you get to translating it. So this, I mean, just, I'm just going to try to just... Let's just look at how crazy, how silly I find this question. You get to translating it. Again, the original letters in what we know as the New Testament, were written in Greek. Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic. Paul spoke Greek. The first translations of the church's letters were in Latin, and eventually came German and English. 
Now, it's in almost every language on Earth, but the complications around translation are that languages don't always have exact one-to-one -one exchange to other languages. Sometimes like a whole concept is in one language and can be expressed in, in one word or another. So like you have like three different types of love in Greek and we only have the word love in English. But for, for, for example, we have um, one concept I'm sure most of us are familiar with, which can be found in the German word Treppenwitz. And I could be saying that wrong, but it's one word. It's this singular German word describes a situation in which you think of the clever or witty comeback for a conversation after it's too late to use. Now, we've all been there. Uh, it's a very common human experience, and I bet you didn't know that there was one word that encapsulates the whole idea. So the trouble is, there's no one English word for it. So imagine you're trying to concisely translate that. It can be complicated to communicate in another language to different groups of people. If specific terms and exact language are what's important, more should people should work on our Greek and Aramaic. On that note, it would be essential to know that Christianity's main character wasn't named Jesus. His name was Yeshua. Now, without getting too into the weeds, here's an example of why biblical translation can be complicated. And this got me good when I found this. So stop. Stop everything. If you're driving... Maybe even pause it and do this whenever you can be by yourself. I just take a moment. Stop doing what you're doing. This here. Come here to this moment, to this this space. Let's occupy this space together. So in the Bible today, the most common word, this is important. I think this is important. And this, I'm the one talking on the podcast, so I guess if I think it's important, it's something. Or it's nothing. But the point is, in the Bible today, the most common word to replace the name God is the Almighty. The most common term to describe God is Almighty. This is because there were several names for God in the Bible. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier. There's Yahweh and El, but you know, most common among them were you know, Yahweh, El, and El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And when the first translators were, I'm sorry, this is good stuff. I'm excited to be here. This is, this is what I've been excited about. Because when the first translators were translating the Jewish scriptures from Hebrew into Greek, they found all the names for God a little bit confusing. Because they were trying to make the case that there's only one God, but all these different names for God made it seem like there's more than one God. So in the book of Job, every time the name El Shaddai is used, Greek translators replaced it with a word that we translate in English as the Almighty. Now, fast forward there were a few hundred years in the future, and a few hundred years after the death of Jesus, the Christian Bible is being compiled and translated into Latin. All these translators ran into basically the same problem. There's too many names for the name of God, for God. But they really liked what the Greek translators did for the book of Job. And so they decided that any time that the name El Shaddai was used in any of the scriptures, not just Job, it was replaced with the Almighty. Now, now, oh, my friends, here is where it gets wild in previews, what's to come in the next section. According to Jewish rabbis, the most accurate translation of the 
words El Shaddai is not the Almighty. It is best translated as the breasted one. The breasted one. Breast like a woman's chest. What is used to feed a newborn baby. Not the Almighty. The breasted one. Ah, oh, gosh, it, <laughs> it just makes me laugh. This feels like an inside joke I've just been let in on, and <laughs> wow, I, I love it. And not necessarily because of boobs. I love it because of how wildly different those two phrases are and how hugely central God the Almighty is in so much of Christian doctrine. And it's based on a mistranslation. And if I close my eyes and just say, oh my gosh, do this with me. If you're not driving, if you're just take a minute, even if you're driving, you can th go there in your mind a little bit, but let's take a minute here, friends. Let's just pause. Let's just pause. Let's close. If you're, if you're, if you feel safe where you are, close your eyes. And if you don't feel safe, don't close your eyes, obviously. But try to come into this present moment. Just be here. Take a, let's just take a breath together. Let's do two more breaths. Try to just calm down and notice what you're feeling, the sensations of your body. You have nowhere to be. And if you do, just pause it and we'll just come back to this later. We'll be right here. Take a moment and you've now registered what you feel, what your body sensations are, what your emotional state is. Just take a moment and think of God as the Almighty. Just think of that phrase. God the Almighty. Does it give you any uh, feelings? that's physical or emotional do you feel anything when you think of God as the Almighty does it bring up a memory or an image God the Almighty give yourself space here really think of what what do you feel what do you think what does it make you feel that God of the universe is God the Almighty. You registered that, so go ahead and you can open your eyes if you want to. You can keep them closed. Doesn't matter either way. 
When I think of the Almighty, it it sends a message. I mean, it has like kind of like an implication. Like a, uh, there's a feeling behind the word. Like this beyond this feeling. The message is that God is dominance, superiority, kingly, strength, separation. Like I'm a tiny bird in a giant's hand, easily crushed. The Almighty. I am small. I am a peasant. God is king, and I should be afraid to be in the presence. God is sitting on a throne, detached and removed from me, and I am on my knees, hoping I have performed well enough. This feels cold, like I'm I'm insignificant, and distant, and like I have to perform as if I'm in the presence of a king. I have to bow, say the correct phrases, and hope not to offend, or God will smite me. If I do wrong. I will be met with the full letter of the law. Now, close your eyes again, or keep them closed, and just mentally imagine yourself. Even you can even physically touch your head. And imagine that you you're just taking the the phrase, the image of God the Almighty out of your mind, and you're setting it on a shelf next to you, or you're tossing it to the side. It doesn't matter. Just get rid of God the Almighty from you. And now let's come back to our body. What are we feeling? Come back to your breath. What are the sensations? Now let's imagine. Imagine God as the breasted one. Does, does it bring up any feelings? Does it make you feel? emotionally a certain way or physically does it bring up a memory or an image god the breasted one give yourself space identify what you're feeling what you're thinking Sitting with the phrase, the breasted one makes me feel small, but in a totally different way. So I'm a child again. I am embraced by a nurturing divine mother. I mean, it brings to memory my Aunt Diane. She, uh, she could have been called the breasted one. You know what I'm saying? As a kid, she would wrap me up in the biggest, warm, full body hug and just smother me. I feel like all my needs will be met. I am safe. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I have a place to rest. I have a place to cry. I feel warmth and ultimate acceptance. I can come in tears or in joy. And I will be embraced by the Divine Mother with a comfort deeper than words can even describe. Just 
just wrapped up in a total big body, warm hug. All that was beyond my control is still beyond my control, but I have a kind and caring safety to walk through it with me. My performance is not determined how loved and accepted I am. Breathe. You can keep your eyes closed or open them if you want. But uh, do you feel that? I mean, that's a, that is a breath of fresh air to me. I can feel it in a way that, that words can't fully describe. It feels like weight is just lifted off of my shoulders. I even have a physical release of tension because I feel as if I'm truly safe. I can relax, breathe, and be taken care of. I don't need to be strong because I am safe. You may need to take a minute and sit with that, eyes closed, and just breathe before moving on. I do. The first time that this was mistranslated to Greek was 100 to 300 years before Jesus. So when it was translated to Latin and eventually all following translations, it was almost 400 years after the death of Jesus. So that means because of a mistranslation, there are almost 2,000 years, over 2,000 years, of feeling as if God is a cold cosmic king and not a warm divine mother. I mean, it implicitly brings into question so many doctrines and beliefs of God from gender to omnipotence. I mean, do you, do you see how much a slight translation error changes everything? I mean, that's only one example of translation complications, but that alone has enormous implications. And that sentence took me so many tries to say, that it feels like a tongue twister or a rap or something. That's only one example of translation complications, but that one alone has en enormous implications. I don't know why that is so hard for me to say, but it has enormous implications. I may have made my point already, but just to be sure, let's continue with why this whole do you believe in the Bible question really feels strange to me, and I'm just going to keep laying it on. So there are many translations of the letters, poems, and stories that make up the Bible. There are also several versions of what comes together to make the Bible. So of course, you know, each translation and version claims supremacy over the others. Each accumulation thinks that they are the true word of God. And the Wycliffe Bible consists of 81 books. The Catholic Bible consists of 73 books. And most recently on the scene of biblical compilation is the Protestant Bible, which consists of 66 books. So which of these Bibles is the right one? Now, the assembly and mass production of the Protestant Bible was a defining moment for the church and really the world. The Word of God had been many things to many people throughout the preceding centuries. The Word of God. We're going to be talking about that a lot going forward. But this moment changed everything. Catholicism ran the streets. They controlled governments, had armies, and were funded by the poor, of course, because who else to fund you? 
Catholics believe that the, the Pope was the supreme authority in regards to understanding God. So as Protestants left, they needed something to supersede the Pope's authority. Thus, the Bible became the Word of God, an ultimate authority in the 16th century. And now this is fun, so let's continue to add on to the compli complication. Some Christians view all creation as the first act of div divine revelation so that the original Word of God is actually nature itself. Early Christians used the word logos, which can be translated as the Word of God. In trying to unpack logos, we'll come next chapter, but I want to briefly touch on it. And so logos means word or reason or rationality. So and at the time, it was more than a word. It was also, it was a Greek and Roman philosophical idea, logos. It, it was heavily associated with wisdom in God. And the word of God, logos, was actually this very divine reason or wisdom. So the word of God was wisdom, reason, and rationality. So all of this to say there seem to be a lot of things that we could refer to as words of God. On top of all this, there is so much conflicting information about events. Two creation stories between Genesis 1 and 2. There's two times where David meets Saul. Um, there's so many instances in the Gospels where the details just don't seem to match up. James says God doesn't tempt man, but God tempted Abraham and hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul writes, God will not allow you to be tempted behind what you can handle. So he's implying that God controls the amount of temptation you do or do not go through. And none of the early church writers really could agree on their Christology. So what was Jesus? What was Christ? What was the Logos? I mean, the list goes on. Some of these discrepancies are trivial, but some are more substantial. I mean, there is great stuff in the Bible, but there is also stuff I simply don't agree with. So even if you are an adamant Bible person, I'd be willing to bet that there's a lot in the Bible that you don't agree with either. In fact, it seems that Jesus felt the same way. In the way that Jesus taught, it appears that he believed that not all scriptures are created equal. He constantly ignored and denied exclusionary, punitive, and prideful texts in Jewish scriptures while favoring passages that emphasized inclusion, mercy, and honesty, and love. Jewish preachers, or Jewish teachers, I should say. Jewish teachers call this deeper approach to understanding scripture midrash. Midrash engages the words of the text, behind the text, and beyond the text. The goal is to extrapolate the text to find the truest message or messages. So some scriptures spoke of perennial and universal truths. Some ideas needed to be tweaked and modified, and others were merely cultural, self-serving, paranoid, tribal, and legalistic additions that Jesus just often simply ignored. We can see the need for this in each section of the Bible. Now, and as I'm writing this, I'm reading 1 Corinthians. In chapter 10, we see Paul spends a chunk of time essentially talking about our convictions compared to other people's. So he insists that we should put other people's conscience, concerns, and convictions before our own. So, like, if it isn't a big deal for you to drink alcohol, but you're sitting with someone trying not to drink, well, it's, it's best not to drink. Or if you're dating and your partner doesn't want to cross a specific physical boundary, just don't push it. Respect them enough to wait until they're ready. 
You get the idea. It's a universally good one. If all people lived with this level of empathy and selflessness, the world would be a better place. But right after that, Paul goes on a tangent about head coverings. First, he says, men and women aren't equal. Men need to remove their head coverings when praying or they are a disgrace. On the other hand, women need to have their heads and face covered when praying or they're a disgrace. And also, if a woman has short hair, disgrace. Now, this is cultural, tribal, self-serving, and legalistic. I'm, I'm just simply not down with it. I disagree with Paul. Also, Christians who are against homosexuality for biblical reasons, there is more in the Bible against women in leadership than there is on homosexuality. Jesus himself really harps on divorce, but doesn't seem caught up on homosexuality. It's not like different sexual orientations are new to society in the past 200 years. He simply didn't address it. Now, to be clear, I am all about women in leadership. Uh, another thing I disagree with Jesus on is divorce. It often can make sense. Some relationships just weren't spending your life on. I've just, um, yeah, wanted to clarify that. Now, there are plenty of other examples within the Bible that I could use, but I just, I don't need to go into them. You get the idea. Some stuff is great. Other stuff, not so much. And I think that it's okay to disagree. It doesn't make you bad or in a debate against God and most of the most of us you know disagree with certain things without even realizing it or vocalizing it anyway or we can perform mental gymnastics to say why the bible doesn't actually mean what it says so though there is some benefit to combining all these letters stories law books and poems we see that it brings along some glaring complications these were written by authors who grew up living in one set of circumstances raised by one particular set of parents writing to a specific person or people at a specific time in history, living in a specific culture, facing specific situations, being read and interpreted by humans living thousands of years later with their own customs, parents, cultures, upbringings, etc. And if you can really acknowledge this, you may start to find it funny when people talk about a singular, correct interpretation of scripture or, or inerrancy. When facing the complication of the Bible, I think Rachel Held Evans said it well. She said, if you're looking for verses with which to support slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you'll find them. And if you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you'll find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you'll find them. And if you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you'll find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant ancient text, you'll find it. And if you're looking for truth, you'll find it. This is why there are times in the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? I suspect Jesus knew this whenever he said, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you'll always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you'll always find the balm. She nailed it. The Bible is complicated. If God is the author and the purpose of scripture is to be clear and literal, God needs a better editor. 
Or maybe he should stop trying to be a writer and finish the honeydew list that everyone has made for him by their prayers. If it wasn't so complicated and the correct view was obvious, there wouldn't be 45,000 Christian denominations today. And that isn't hyperbole. There also wouldn't be wars fought over different interpretations and beliefs. This isn't to say that the Bible is garbage, but like Rachel said, if you are looking for truth, you'll find it. The issue comes when the Bible becomes idolized and weaponized, specifically when one specific interpretation of it becomes idolized. There is a, there's a better place for it than the foundation. Now, I don't have a hard and fast answer for you in this dilemma, besides not reading it literally. Uh, but here's an option worth considering. Methodists call it the quadrilateral. It is, I'm just reading from their website, uh, methodist.org. It is a fourfold approach used to learn about the Christian faith and apply its teaching to life and any issues we face. All parts have equal relevance to living out your practice. So part one is scripture. We seek to discover the word of God through reading scripture. There are different understandings among Methodists about the Bible's authority in our lives. We need to use resources like different Bible translations, commentaries, and Bible reading notes. Two, Tradition, this is the wisdom and creativity of Christians over time and across the world. It includes inspirational material like hymns, songs, prayers, poetry, Christian art, and devotional work, uh, devotional books. Three, reason, we are called to love God with our minds as well as our hearts. To the best of our ability, we need to think things through in the light of reason. This means becoming aware of different points of view and using our own critical thinking to make sense of God's world. For experience, Methodism particularly stresses the importance of our experience of God's grace working in our lives. We gain wisdom and maturity from life experience, especially when we pray and reflect on our stories with other Christians. Now, this is not me making a sales pitch for Methodism. I'm not a Methodist. Here we see the Bible not elevated as like some handbook for life or like the singular divine revelation. Instead, it's one part of a larger equation. Methodists acknowledge and support different understandings of the Bible within its own denomination. And the way that someone treats the Bible does not determine their ability to become or be a Christian. Be okay with different understandings of the Bible because there are plenty. Now, back to the question posed at the start of the chapter. Do you believe in the Bible? I hope you see how silly that question is. My, my answer may have seemed a little complicated and dismissive. I don't know. But that's because the Bible, like most things, is complicated. But... It should be treated as if it is. I mean, there's no real way to do justice to that question with a single sentence, let alone a simple yes or no. However, I hope that an increasing number of Christians develop the freedom to read and understand the Bible through different lenses than simply historical narrative or authored by God or literal or inerrant. If there is no ultimate idea to get from the Bible, but I'd say that you're simply missing it, whatever it is, if you can only understand it in those ways. 
those views take away from something much deeper and more profound. And if that's the only lens that you can see the Bible through, just tell me how interesting the history of a few families and ancient civilizations in the Middle East circa 2000 BCE to 400 CE really is. <sighs> if treated well, reading the Bible can pique our interest and intrigue us towards something more. But I believe in I believe in mystery. I believe in turning our attention to something beyond ourselves. I believe the Bible can participate in, move, and motivate us to be in relationship with unknown. My man, here we go. Hope you're still with me. Here's the most ironic section of them all on idolizing God. Ugh, making God an idol. What a funny concept. I mean, if that doesn't make you laugh, just know that it makes me laugh and has made me laugh several times as I've written this. I mean, isn't this whole thing about God? Well, yeah, sure. So how can I make an idol of what is I what I'm supposed to worship? It's easy to become attached to a specific notion of God. However, when we become so attached, we miss valuable insights and deeper truths. Often we have a conception of God. It's made in our own image or our idealized image of what we, God, the best of humanity should be in our mind. I mean, you can see this happen in the Bible. Just look at the prophets of the Old Testament. So Isaiah was a was a member of the royal family, and he saw and depicted God as a king sitting on a throne. Amos was a simple shepherd, and he preached to wealthy people because he saw his own empathy for the suffering poor and connected that to the character of God. Hosea's wife became a sacred member of the fertility cult of Baal, what a cult, uh, but he then saw God as a husband who was hurt by his wife, Israel, and who felt yet a yearning love and tenderness for her despite what could have felt like betrayal. And we project ourselves onto God all the time. Our political ideologies, views of right and wrong, ideals, morals, comforts, and discomforts, all of it. Because of this and so many other reasons, we need to hold loose to our ideas of what the divine actually is. And I say this because in Christianity alone, there are so many views of who or what God is. And to many people, the image of God believed in is critical when determining someone's rightness or wrongness. Most people believe in something larger than themselves, like the divine, and they will say words like, God is bigger than we can imagine. They say that, but despite that, it can be easy. It can be easy to feel like the image of God in our head is, well, God. Like, we've, we've got it. We have the answers. We have imagined the unimaginable comprehended the incomprehensible, defined the undefinable, quantified the unquantifiable, my beliefs are the beliefs. Now, most of us wouldn't say any of that, but we may feel, respond, and speak in a way that communicates that message. 
in many ways, we have to have a mind like a child. Like, you know, we have to be open, humble, wanting to learn thought after thought after thought. And so just for laughs, just for kicks and giggles, let's look at some different views of God within Christianity itself. Now, I'm no expert on these topics. I'm no theologian, but I'll express these ideas as clearly and best as I can. And you'll see some overlap. And that may be because they are similar or because I'm giving you a poor explanation. One, God number one, God as a super being. So this is one of the most common ideas of God today. So this idea is embodied by the controversy surrounding the story, The Shack. In 2007, the book The Shack was released, and then 10 years later, it was adapted into a movie. Now, I've never seen or read it, but boy, boy, have I heard people complain about it. So the only thing that I, I know about it is that God is represented as a black woman and the Holy Spirit is Asian? I mean, when, when this came out, people were beside themselves. This is heresy. More recently, I've seen people or churches say something like, God is love and she loves you. She, emphasis on she. Christians quickly get up in arms about these progressive churches. They're corrupting the gospel. God is not a she, which, I mean, this is comically ironic given the mistranslation mentioned earlier of the blessed one. Jeez. Now keep in mind, I wrote this before Christianity Today released their article on whether God could be called they slash them. They insisted that God must be a he slash him. Um, it was an all-around silly article, but this isn't a detailed response specifically towards them, but hey, it's applicable. Convenient timing. Now, th there's a felt need for God to be identified as a man, as if God has a, a penis and testicles. Like, there is a even a well-known pastor that has made the argument that men have their penis on loan from God, that it's actually God's penis, and the penis's home is in a wife's vagina. Now, this is a real thing, and I really try not to make things up. So look it up if you dare. Now, here... God is super being, God needs to have a penis and not a vagina. Prayers need to be sent up to big, strong daddy God. The masculinity and kingliness of God are emphasized. There's a strange obsession with genitals when it comes to evangelical purity culture. Purity culture focuses on what someone wears, what they do with their body, sexuality, and genitals more than any other group I've ever encountered. Which, to be fair, I have referenced genitals and breasts and will continue to do so in the subsequent chapters. But it's, it's mainly to talk about God and poke a little fun. God, as super being, does not view the Bible as anything other than literal and historical. The poems are poems, but they're really also literal. In this view of God, God is just like us, but more. More of everything. God feels what we feel and is what we are. God is a being in every sense of the word. Uh, philosopher Peter Rons uses an example for this that I just love. In the episode of The Simpsons, Homer is stuck in a hot air balloon. Homer gets on his knees, folds his hands, and says, I'm not normally a praying man, but if you're up there, please save me, Superman. It's so funny. 
I, I mean, the delivery is better when it's Homer. But God is essentially Superman in this idea. God is all the things that humans are, just like more of those things. Another example of this view of God is from the original Clash of the Titans, a really Greek mythology. But in the movie, the gods are basically humans with powers that live somewhere in the sky heaven or Mount Olympus, given the context. They know what's happening on Earth. And they're jealous. They're angry, fickle, offendable, horny, and just like any other human being. Their role in human existence is that they move game pieces to shape and influence the lives of humans. And sometimes it's based on strategy and it's well thought out. And other times it's merely emotional. Now you you may read this and think, obviously God is different from Greek gods and Superman. This isn't how I view God. But before you're too sure, let's talk about what this idea looks like in real life. This mentality takes symbols and believes the symbol to be reality or God itself. This is also something that could be applied to what we do with the Bible as a whole. Um, but, you know, meaning this, think of the American flag. The American flag can bring to mind the national anthem. It can bring patriotism, the military, war, 9-11, drone strikes, your political party, the opposing political party, the president, and ultimately, the United States. Now, now the flag, the flag is none of those things. It's a symbol. It's a fabric with stars, colors, and stripes on it. This flag represents ideas, but it's not the ideas themselves. It points to something other than itself. It also points to our experience, understanding, and relationship to that flag and what it represents. So to the veteran, that flag is something different than it is to a child. The flag doesn't change, just the perception of it. Another example is one I constantly reference. It's mistaking the finger pointing to the moon as the moon itself. So the monk points and says, look at the moon. Now, the student is enamored by the teacher's pointing finger. Soon he tells everyone that his master's finger is the moon. Here the finger is the symbol. It's pointing to something besides itself, the moon. But if we confuse the finger and think the finger is the moon, we miss the whole point, the moon. So God is super being, worships the symbol and not what the symbol is supposed to represent. It's, it's the worshiping the words, not the message. So this is to worship Jesus on the cross and not the ideas they represent. Ideas like standing against the dominant religious institutions, which are entirely missing the point in misleading people. Fighting your oppressor, not with armies and weapons, but with weakness, love, and grace. Ideas like living with the courage to do what is right, even though it may come at the cost of losing family, relationships, and even your life. I mean, there are so many more messages beyond just Jesus dying and somehow having to do something with you. Now, another dilemma with God as super being is that it has these messages attached to it. This is a being that decides to give billions of dollars to a select few while letting millions starve and live homeless. This is a being who decided 
that some people would be born in a nation, community, or family to never hear the gospel and spend eternity damned to hell. This is a being that allows violence and war to take innocent parents from children and children from parents, whose only fault was to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. A being who lets millions of people die of malaria, malnutrition, and other problems that we actually have answers for. A being that lets murderers and rapists run free. A being that decides to answer some prayers and doesn't answer others. A being that says, if you're hungry, I wouldn't give you a rock. I'd give you bread. But when you ask for bread, you often still get a rock. Now, you can try to brush these off as God's ways are higher than our ways, or this is just a hopelessly broken world. But we all realize that those answers just don't cut it, right? When Steve Jobs was a child, he occasionally attended Sunday school. Then one day on the cover of Life magazine, there was a picture of two starving children in Biafra. So Jobs took the magazine to the, to the church to confront the pastor, and the conversation went something like this. Jobs, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I do it? The pastor, yes, God knows everything. Jobs then pulled out Life magazine and asked does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? The pastor, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Jobs announced he didn't want anything to do with worshiping such a God, and he never went back to church. This story has haunted me ever since I first read it. It has stuck with me because this is the case not just for Steve Jobs, but for so many of us. More and more people realize the absurdity of responses like God's ways are higher than our ways and oh, whatever the other one is. More and more people realize the absurdity of responses like we're just in a hopelessly broken world. People are leaving the church for a multitude of reasons, and this is just a huge one. One of the most substantive cases against the theistic idea of God is called the trilemma. A trilemma makes these three statements. You've probably heard some variation of it before, and it goes like this. One, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. Two, if God is not willing to prevent evil, he is not all-good. Three, if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? If this is the first time you've seen or heard those statements, um, maybe just take time to really think about it. Give yourself space if you need to. You may hear my son in the background, and I'm totally fine with it. He's been pretty uh, pretty casual. He's, he's three, so he's not going to be perfectly quiet and contained. But just as a warning, this is uh, just recording this in the midst of every day. So two. God as a hyper being. Let's continue on. So God as a hyper being is one of the more originally orthodox views of God. God is still a being, and any view of God as a conscious being that decides things faces many of the same dilemmas as God as super being, but here we take a vast step away from Superman God. Here, God is a being in a very different sense. It's understood that language can never fully encompass God. That all words are just symbols themselves, like a flag. So God isn't a male with a penis, 
But like a father, he is the source of origin and protects. God isn't a female with a vagina, but like a mother or breasted one, she nurtures, comforts, and loves. God isn't king, but we and we subjects, but like a kingdom, the universe has laws and rules. God isn't a shepherd and we are sheep, but like a shepherd, the 99 should be left to take care of the one. God wouldn't be a father or mother in a procreation or gender sense. Language is the tool or symbol we use to describe the characteristics most commonly attached to genders. Words and descriptors are, are not meant to be literal here. Here it is known full well that God is beyond genders. And you could say that God transcends genders. Uh, since God transcends gender, does that, does that mean God is non-binary? I mean, maybe, maybe non-binary people are more like God than Christians give them credit for. But God, I digress. God can't be defined perfectly, written about perfectly, or understood perfectly. But through symbols, we can share ideas, share ideas and try to understand God and relate to each other. Attributes of God can be seen in symbols of the clouds, the sun, the moon, animals, the cycle of seasons, the hydraulic cycle, and, and all of nature. And though it's usually not quite as humble, this could be similar to the Jewish view of God. Jews are so against putting God inside a box of dogmatic doctrine that they refuse to even name God. That is why Yahweh is not even a word. It's, it's breath. The second you say God's name, you call God by the wrong name. I love that line. The second you say God's name, you call God by the wrong name. If we look at many Christian mystics, this is where they fall in their conception of God. These ideas are grounded in the belief that God can't be fully conceptualized, that God exists in a realm beyond thought. So St. Anselm said, God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. We are constantly trying to find symbols and metaphors to help us comprehend the incomprehensible. Still, this view starts from a place that recognizes we will always fall short. Even talking about God. We start from a place of humility, open-handed, open-minded, and we know full well that whatever we say is not speaking on behalf of God or a perfect reflection of God. This view of God accepts that the idea of the Trinity is not meant to be a literal definition of what God is. Instead, its original intent was to be the image to help us just conceptualize characteristics of the divine. Language, symbols, and metaphors are merely the fingers pointing to the moon. God number three. God is the ground of being. So the ground of being is a concept of God where God is not a being among other beings, like you know, separate and detached. Rather, it's the belief that there, there is no separation from God. God does not live in a dimension that is above the earth called heaven. God is in all things. So this is not to say that we are God, but that there's no concept of being in or out of the presence of God. There is no God is here and not there mentality. So with this view of God, all creation is born out of God. Thus, we're connected to all things and each other. 
we, we can imagine uh, God being the structure or ground in all material existence is the trees, vegetation, and life that grows from that ground. Intrinsically connected, yet different. God is the source of life and growth. So the, theologian Paul Tillich was cr critical of the view of God as some type of being or presence. He felt that if God were a being, God could not be called the source of all being. This is due to the question, what created God? His answer was uh, to advocate for the idea that God is the ground of being. So here, God is, is not an object to be considered. God comes before both subject and object. So as soon as you think of God as an object, you're no longer thinking of God. Peter Rollins has said it like this, you can never love God because God is not an object. You love objects. So you love someone. And in loving someone, you love God. So God is not an object that you love. God is that which you discover in the act of love itself. So basically, you love God by taking care of his sheep. You take care of his sheep by loving yourself and loving your neighbor. It's, it's cause and effect. Because of the actions of loving your neighbor and self, the effect is that you discover and love God. To worship and discover God, you walk your path. You fully immerse yourself into life. You find the most important thing, something that you could live and die for, something that is just about bringing more life into the world, and that is where you find God. Number four is God as event. So in his book, The Pastor in the Secular Age, Dr. Andrew Root identifies God as the God of Exodus and the God of the Resurrection. We can know who God is by these two events and all the events surrounding them. So he writes, this God is a living God because this God identifies with events. Making the happenings of these events God's identity, we can know who God is by spotting the events that God identifies with. Basically, this is, this is to say that Christ told us to look for him in the eyes of the poor, the naked, the lonely, the exiled, the prisoner, the downcast, and the impressed. So God is not found in theory. God is found in action. We find God in acts. In loving your neighbor, fighting against injustice, confronting our own difficulties, demons, and brokenness, and ultimately, any event God identifies with. God is the calling of what could be more, where we see the vastness of truth and reality. So where there is every sign of human strength, here God appears as weakness. So I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. I'm about to explain it a little bit more, but where there's every sign of human strength, here God appears as weakness. In his book, John Caputo, uh, The Weakness of God, described it this way. The kingdom of God is the rule of weak forces like patience and forgiveness, which instead of forcibly exacting payment for offense, they release and let go. The kingdom is found whenever war and aggression are met with an offer of peace. The kingdom is a way of living, not in eternity, but here in time. A way of living without why, living for the day, like the lilies in the field that are figures of weak forces, 
as opposed to mastering and programming time, calculating the future, and containing and managing risk. The kingdom reigns whenever the least and most undesirable have our favor, while all the best and most powerful are put on the defensive. The powerless power of the kingdom prevails whenever the one is preferred to the 99. Whenever one loves one's enemies and hates one's father and mother, while the world, which believes in power, counsels us to fend off our enemies and keep the circle of kin and kind, of family and friends, fortified and tightly drawn. Here, God isn't a strong being that controls and dictates everything, like a puppet master. Instead, God is the still, small voice. So instead of meeting violence with violence, war with war, apathy with apathy, fighting enemies and keeping like-minded people close, this still small voice meets violence with kindness, war with peace, apathy with love, and serves enemies and is willing to walk away from the comfort and security of what feels safe. Though love is seemingly weak, it paradoxically subverts our expectations. The apparent strengths of humanity are violence, war, apathy, and other signals of power. But love conquers them all. Five, God as process. The last one, okay, in some ways, this feels like a cousin to God uh, as a vent. This, this view of God proposes that God is affected by things that happen in the world. God has grown, changed, and evolved from the beginning to be right along the process with us. So God is not like an omni-being, not all-powerful, all-knowing, or whatever. If God was an omni-being, then evil shouldn't exist. Evil does exist, therefore, either God doesn't exist or God is not an omni-being. God can't force anything to happen. God can only influence free will by offering new possibilities. The future is unknown and open even to God. So God knows everything about what exists, but can't know about the future because the future is made up of what does not exist and has not yet been decided. So God is unfolding and changing with the universe. God contains the universe, but is not the universe itself. God is affected by the actions and events that take place in the universe over time. Well, this is the case. God is unmoving characteristics like wisdom, goodness, love, and whatever. God is shown and understood through experience and events. It's not by ideas. So God is in the bush, the fire, the freedom from slavery. God is in washing the dishes. God is in the moments of deep intimacy with a partner. God is in the eye contact with your dog. God is in the long loneliness, the heartbreak of losing a loved one, the joy of a new life, the cleaning up after your child who's puked, the seeing your child grow and learn. God is, is revealed in Every moment the same. I know it was a lot. I, but it's crazy. It's crazy because there, there's a lot. There's a lot of thoughts on what God is or could be. 
Some of these views get wildly confusing and more complex, and I've just scratched the surface. And ironically, though, I'm I'm talking about these ideas of God because they aren't all that interesting to me. I'm not interested. I don't I don't care to be a theologian. And don't get me wrong, there are some some great lessons and things to consider in all these ideas of God, but really there comes a point where I simply don't care enough to dwell on these ideas after God is super being like whatever. Some of these ideas are absolutely destructive. I they're bad. Yeah. But for the most part, it's I kind of don't want to dwell on it. It's like the idea of being a pen and ink philosopher, meaning that you can say words about bigger ideas of God that sound smart and well-spoken, or you can say it like I said it, but that isn't the point. What's most important is how we live. God is complicated. And there doesn't really seem to be the answers. And that's okay. One of my favorite things to pray comes from Maester Eckhart. He prayed, God, rid me of God. He A prayer that he, he said to mean this, get rid of any concept of God that I desperately cling to. Get rid of an idol of God that I've created in my own mind. Get rid of an idea that has taken the place of the reality of God. Get rid of any certainty I have of God. Do you feel that? Well, the humility, the contentment, the peace, all our ideas, theologies, and beliefs are talking about a concept of God. And as soon as we've identified God, we have misidentified God. No other gods before me includes the idea of God that we hold onto in our minds. When we think of God, remember the God above God. God above God is to realize that all the languages, theologies, and theories of God are just ideas. God above God is to always realize that there is a God beyond your understanding of God, that the image that we have in, of God in our mind is, is just potentially an idol. When we, when we hold too tightly to our beliefs, we forget what it means to have faith. Faith is more than an unyielding belief in list of statements. But when we hold too tightly to our image of God, we misplace our worship. We worship the calf. The truth isn't in some thought or list of beliefs. It's in what we do and who we are. And as Jesus encouraged, have a mind like a child, open, willing to learn, humbled, filled with awe, thought after thought after thought. God, rid me of God. Oh, my friends, do you see it? We're closing up chapter two, but do you see it? Even well-meaning attention and focus, if misplaced, creates real issues. You can undermine the spirit within, around, and among you. You can take away from the importance of the way of living life. You can sabotage yourself by putting too much emphasis on the divine literalism of the Bible, and you can worship an image of God that is ultimately an image of self. But even if, even if, even if, even if I don't worship 
church, pastors, and performances, even if the Bible is emphasized appropriately, even if I have set aside my personalized image of God, even if all of that, but I don't have charity and love, I am nothing. Thank you for listening. Feel free to continue to join us on the podcast. As always, all content is also written on our website. This content is only part of what we do. We want to know you. This is an experiment in creating a community that transcends our physical location. We have regular community pop-ups where we connect and have intellectually honest conversations. To sign up for information, stay up to date with our online pop-ups and events, to join our community on Discord and follow us on social media, check out our website at thesondercommunity.com.